Good morning. Uh, it's great to be with you this morning. We're starting, like Tony said, a new series on 1 John. And it's, it's really exciting to be, to be looking at this book because um, it is a book that just has so much to say to us. Um, so we're just going to be looking at the first four verses uh, this morning. Um, so we're going to read those together and then we'll dive in. Upon the um, screen, if you want to follow. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we write this to make our joy complete. Um, so this is a letter written about AD 85, AD 90, so about, about 60 years or so after Jesus died. And it was written by a man called John, um, who was uh, one of Jesus' disciples. Um, and it's the same guy who wrote uh, the, the Gospel of John. Um, and he wrote two other letters, uh, originally titled Second John and Third John. Um, and he also wrote the book of Revelation. And uh, John wasn't a guy to draw attention to himself, so he never actually identifies himself in this letter, but the style between all of those letters, the way they're written, it's almost identical. The, the opening verses that we've got here are really, really similar um, to the, the opening chapter of the Gospel of John. And so that's how we know that, that John wrote it. And, and the early church historians depended on these letters and on that Gospel as, as their source of truth, as their source of understanding of Jesus. And, and they write about him extensively in there. So we're, we're really sure that this is a man who spent three years living with Jesus, um, living amongst him, being with him, seeing him at work, spending time with him. And, and this is um, the man who, who we can learn from here. And, and the one thing that's really different about John is that he is probably the only of the original disciples that, that lived and knew Jesus who wasn't martyred, who didn't die for their faith. And so John is writing this book right at the end of his life. He would be an old man, even older than Simon, um, when he wrote this book. And, and so we have so much to learn from it. This is a book of this is the teachings of a man who, who walked with Jesus and then was a leader in the church for decades, who suffered for his faith, who saw his friends, who saw um, the churches that he led persecuted and suffer and struggle. And, and this is what he has to say uh, to the church. So he was probably based in Ephesus or some part of Asia when he wrote this, and he probably wrote it to the church in Ephesus, and, and this church clearly knew him really well, because he didn't have to say who he was, 
Like this was a letter that everyone knew who this letter was from, who this John was. They knew him personally. They knew him closely. He didn't need to introduce himself. And it's clear that as, as we get into uh, the letter, that this was a church that was struggling a bit, that there were some teachers that had come into the church that were saying some things that weren't true. And John wanted to write to this church to encourage them to build them up and to equip them to handle this false teaching. And the structure of this book is really different compared to a lot of other of the letters that we have in the Bible. And I'd, if, if you're someone who likes to use the internet, I'd really recommend you go to thebibleproject.org and watch the video that talks about uh, this book. The Bible Project is, is, is an amazing website that gives you, in a really accessible way, a way of understanding how, how, how the books work and what the authors were saying and, and how it hangs into the rest of Scripture. Because these books were not just jottings on the back of an envelope that they quickly wrote. That they, the serious thought went into the way that they structured what they wrote and how they wanted to get their message across. And the great thing about John and the way he wrote is that the way he wrote was kind of like um, a spiral. And he would, he would introduce a few themes and talk a bit about them. And then he'd go back round those themes and expand on them again. And he'd go back round those themes one more time and expand on them even more. And this was a really common way of writing and talking about ideas in the first century. And it's a technique called amplification. But it's, it's not something that, that maybe we're used to today. We're used to really kind of structured, logical, ordered arguments, um, you know, with headings and you know, good, good, good structures and developing an idea. And that's not the way that John wrote. It's much more poetic. It's... He's kind of, he, he just wants us to soak in these ideas and then soak in them some more and, and keep soaking in them. And, and I, I really feel that reflects John's life. Partway through John's life, he was exiled by one of the Roman emperors to an island called Patmos. And um, he probably had to undergo a lot of hard labour and it would have been really difficult. And, and, he, and, and there, it, it appears there may have been some kind of um, Christian community there that he was able to, to minister to as well while he was there. But the thing with that kind of suffering is a, a degree of control is taken away from your life. You, know, you have been exiled, you are no longer in control of where you live, how you live, or how long you're going to live there. You have to endure it. You have to live with it. You have to bear with it you just you just have to walk the path there's there's just one difficult road in front of you and that's the only choice you have and 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 through that time you know John would have had a lot of time to reflect a lot of time to think on what he'd learned from Jesus and what it meant to live and follow Jesus now and and that is why this book matters to us I love that song that Richard introduced to us I love the honesty in it. You know, that, that first, I can't remember exactly how the words go, but do we just recognise that life can be really hard sometimes, that the shadows are, are getting longer sometimes? Life is, is not simple. There are difficulties that we have to face. Difficult relationships, pain, 
hurt in, in our own lives, pain and hurt in the lives of those who are near and dear to us, those we love. And then as we look out into the world, it's just complicated, it's messy, it's dirty. And we believe that Jesus is the answer to all of this. And we're not looking for trite answers that, that sound good but aren't much use to us in our lives. We want to encounter a Jesus that is going to help us to live a life that's worthy of the calling that he's given us. That uh, when we want to encounter a Jesus that has meaning for the difficulty in our own lives and in the lives of those around us. We want to encounter a Jesus who brings hope and life and love. We want to encounter a Jesus who has defeated the power of sin and death and is going to bring a great victory that gives us all hope for a future where sin and death is taken away. And John met that Jesus face to face and then lived in fellowship with him for the rest of his life. And so that's why we want to listen to this guy because he really knows what he's talking about and he lived it. He was no theologian just sitting in an ivory tower. He was a man who endured difficulty. He was a man who who saw hope in people's lives. And so we want to listen to him. So let's get, let's get going. So the, the first um, few verses here really echo an awful lot of what we get in the first chapter of the Gospel of John. So in this letter, 1 John, it starts, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. And let's read the first few chapters from the gospel, the first few verses from the, chap, the gospel of John, which will be on the screen behind me. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made, Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And in him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. And so in these verses, we get an idea of who John understands Jesus to be. Jesus was not just a man. Jesus was God, was with God from the beginning. He is the word. He's God's commands. He's God's message to us. He is the expression of God. God explains himself. He describes himself through who Jesus is. And Jesus made all things. He is, he is God's authority. He's God's power. He's the one who brought everything into being that we see on this earth, on this universe. All the creativity, all the majesty, all the complexity that we see in that. He's, he's God's authority, he's God's power. And Jesus is life. He is the life that not just, um, he is the life that ushers everything into being. He is the life that gives us our breath, our existence, our reason for being. And he is the one that we can look to, to bring meaning into our lives. Jesus is the light 
of the world. He is the light of mankind. And light has this idea of nourishing. It's, you know, if there's no light that falls on a plant, then plants can't grow and they can't give us the oxygen that we need to breathe. Without light, all of life dies. And in the same way, light is a guide. You know, if you try and walk around in darkness, you'll bump into things. We need light to guide us and to lead our way. And Jesus is both our nourishment and our guide. And this light shines into the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. You know, we, we, can, we can both acknowledge the darkness. We don't need to gloss over how dark the world can be, how dark our own hearts can be. And at the same time, we can acknowledge that Jesus is the light. And that light shines into the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. It implies battle. It implies conflict, that light coming into contact with darkness. And it also implies victory, that darkness can never overcome the light. And, and these verses in the, in the opening chapter of, of John's Gospel are very much reminiscent of Genesis and, and the account of how God creates the world. And so John is saying here that Jesus was at the beginning. Jesus was at the start of God's plan. Jesus was all of God's authority and power. And now in Jesus coming to earth and, and, and bringing that embodiment to earth, he is the completion and the fulfillment of all of God's plan. If you want to understand who God is and his plan for the world and his plan for the universe and his plan for our lives, we need to look at Jesus. We need to understand Jesus. Jesus culminates all of what God is doing. And this is of eternal significance for us because just as God is the completion of God's plan, and God's story, that means, means that Jesus is the completion of our story and our plan as well. He is the meaning for what God wants to do in our lives. So it's worth paying attention. And then going back to the first verse of 1 John. This which was from the beginning which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim. So Jesus came to live amongst people. He's not just a concept, an idea. He is a historical fact. He was a person that ate bread and drank wine. He was a person that grew up as a baby into a man. He was a man who, who almost certainly had to work for a living. He was a man who had a, a mother and a stepfather. He was uh, a man who had brothers. Um, he was a man who, who lived in a community. And this is how God wanted to show us what he is like. And it is worth us taking time to meditate on what that means. That when God wanted to reveal himself to us, he did it in an intimate and vulnerable way. He did not come to earth 
as a mighty, powerful king that no one could touch. He came to earth as a baby who needed a mother to look after him. He grew up as a man who was dependent on friends for companionship and to deal with the logistics of life, like where should we get our lunch today? And it is worth us remembering this, that this is how God wants to be with us. That was how Jesus was with John for those three years that they shared life together. And that is how Jesus continued to be with John throughout the rest of his life. There's a vulnerability there. There is costly love. It cost Jesus so much to dwell amongst people. And that was what Jesus chose to do. And John encountered this at a visceral level, at a gut level. John describes himself as the disciple who Jesus loved. In the account of the Last Supper in, in John's Gospel, John is, is leaning against Jesus. He is one of Jesus' closest friends on earth. And John encountered this. It, John's Gospel is full of encounters with Jesus. There's Nicodemus, the Pharisee who was too scared to speak to Jesus during the day and came at night. There's the, the woman at the well. There were all the healings. There's the feeding of the 5,000. And, and we need our encounter with Jesus to be visceral, to be gut level, to be physical, to be real as well. It is too easy for us just to have a, a theological understanding of Jesus. Now, the reason we celebrate the bread and the wine as actual bread and wine, I mean, we could just talk about it, couldn't we? We could just talk about the symbolism. We could just talk about the meal that Jesus shared with his disciples and all the truth that comes from that. But Jesus said, don't do that. Eat the bread, drink the wine, do it together, because this has to be real. This has to be physical. This has to be something you encounter in your body, not just in your mind. I watched a uh, Hannah was away with the kids um, a couple of weeks ago and just between these closed walls, I really like it because it means I get to watch the films I want to watch um, and, and I chose to watch Goodwill Hunting and I've never seen it before um, and it's a great film. It's about a young man set in Boston who is a mathematical genius um, but works as a cleaner in MIT, which is a, a really prestigious university in Boston, and, um, and instead spends his life with his friends getting drunk, getting into fights. And um, he gets into one too many fights and ends up in court. And um, uh, while he'd been working as a cleaner, he'd solved this really, really difficult mathematical puzzle that none of the other students could solve. And one of the professors there realises it's this cleaner and then finds out that he gets into this fight and persuades the court to say, don't send him to jail, release him into my care, this, this boy's a genius. Um, and as part of it, he has to spend some time with a psychologist called Sean, and, um, who's played by Robin Williams. It's one of Robin Williams' best performances. It's absolutely fantastic. And... Um, and this, this psychologist, Sean, sees completely through Will, who's this incredibly clever guy who's got an answer to everything, and says, 
you know, it's all very well and good having all this knowledge about art and philosophy and love. But unless you encounter it, it's meaningless. You know, you might have seen a picture of the Sistine Chapel. You might understand all the theological significance of Michelangelo. But unless you've stood there underneath it and taken it in, taken in its grandeur and its splendor, it's completely meaningless. You have to encounter it. And it is the same with Jesus. We need to encounter Jesus in a real way for him to be meaningful, for him to bring the truth into our hearts that we so need. And, and John, John uses the fact that he'd encountered Jesus as giving credibility to his message. Like, I walk with Jesus. I know what I'm talking about. You better listen. And it gives him authority to challenge wrong teaching. It gives him authority to speak into people's lives. And our encounters with Jesus, our stories of what Jesus has done in our lives, also gives us authority to speak into this world. You know, we don't need to win theological arguments. We just need to share who Jesus is and what he has done in our lives. We don't, you don't need to be the best theologian, the best apologist. You don't need to be the best at winning arguments. I mean, when has winning an argument ever persuaded anyone of anything? <laughs> this makes people cross. People want encounters. They want to see, they, they want to understand what's happening in your life. They want to enjoy a relationship with you that introduces them to a relationship with Jesus. John spoke with authority because he'd lived amongst this church. He'd been with them for the highs and the lows. He knew Jesus and he could share Jesus with them. So tell your story. Be honest. You don't have to have all the answers. Just, just share who Jesus is. And in verse 2, the life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father. The prophecy in Isaiah that we often quote around Christmas time is the idea that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And one of John's key messages is that Jesus came to be with us. He is the life of God living with us, that he came to be known. And so we need to ensure that we are getting to know Jesus and not just knowing about him. And John was a witness to this and it really cost him. Now there are all kinds of interesting myths about John, about whether he was boiled in oil but that didn't work and so they sent him off to Patmos and I don't know whether any of that is true but the idea that John suffered for being a witness for Jesus his friends the church he was a part of suffered for being a witness for Jesus churches around the world today continue to suffer for being a witness to Jesus and and at a really simple level, the thing that that says to me is, why would you suffer if it was just a nice theological idea, if it was just a good framework of belief that was sort of helpful? 
why, why would you suffer for that? Why would you put up with that much pain and, and that much hardship? Well, you would only do that if it was true. You would only do that if the encounter that you had had with Jesus was so life-changing, was so real, had got a hold of your heart so much that you would endure any pain other than to deny that love. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So actually, I just want to skip back a bit. I just realized I missed something. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. So what do we mean by eternal life? And we quite often talk about eternal life as a, a length of time. It's like, uh, if I believe in Jesus, I get eternal life, which means I will live forever with God, both in this earth and forever after. You know, it's, a, uh, it is, it's a description of an amount of time. But John doesn't say that. It says, we proclaim to you the eternal life. For John, eternal life is an object. It's a person, and that person is Jesus. Eternal life is Jesus. It's another title for who Jesus is. And when you think of it, start to think of it that way, it starts to take on a different meaning of, of what eternal life might mean. If it's no longer just a description of how long time is. It has this idea of, of being expansive, of being vast, of being without time. If Jesus was the one who was at the beginning, all of God's power in his word creating humanity, and if he is eternal and he will rule and reign forever, then Jesus' life is, is infinite. It is vast. It is expansive. It has a love in it. That, that never ends, where you can't find the edges of it. And so the idea of eternal life is, is no longer a ticket to heaven. It's a relationship with Jesus. We get a relationship with the eternal life. And in doing so, that makes our lives eternal as well. We also get to experience the the infinite, expansive, boundless life that Jesus brings, the love that he has, that has no start, no end. And we enter into that eternal life through relationship. In John 1.12, it says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And we need that eternal life. That eternal life is Jesus' kingdom. It is what will overcome darkness both in our hearts and in the world around us. And we get to enter into that not because of anything that, that we do, anything that we are, but because we can accept everything that Jesus has done. 
And that is what John's encouraging people here to do is enter into that eternal life. Enter into that relationship with the eternal life because of what Jesus has done. And John's proclaiming this. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So we enjoy eternal life. We experience eternal life. We're able to hold out the hope of eternal life to those around us, not by great ideas or clever theology, but by relationship, by fellowship with the Father, with the Son, with the Holy Spirit. And John is inviting the churches into that fellowship with, the, with God and with, with John and with the other believers who believe that as well. So being a Christian could really be described as accepting Jesus and joining fellowship with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit and with one another. That's why we meet together. That's why it's so important to be part of church, so important to be part of a community of faith because we can only really have fellowship with God if we're having fellowship with one another. And the idea of the relationship that we see in the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit is right from Genesis all the way through the Bible that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are in perfect relationship with one another. They are one God, but they're all different. They all have different characteristics, different attributes. They glorify and worship one another. They esteem one another. They exist in perfect fellowship with one another, completely knowing and understanding one another. And it is this fellowship that we are welcomed into, both with God and with each other, a place where we can be fully known, fully accepted. just as we are. And, and John's message here is that he wants, he is drawing other people into this fellowship, that the gospel that he's preaching is to draw other people into this fellowship. It's not cliquey, it's not about, right, I've got my thing going on here and I don't want anyone else to be a part of it. He's trying to draw other people into it. I think I've, I've learned quite a lot about about fellowship over the last year. And um, a, a couple of weeks ago in our life group, I think I had my, probably what the, the best life group meeting um, thing I've ever had. And it was just me, Di, and Zoe. And um, so apologies to the rest of the group. It's not personal. Um, and, and, and we spent probably an hour and a half, two hours, just sharing stories from our life and drinking tea and eating too many biscuits. And it was, there was no kind of, I don't think we set out to do that. Um, it wasn't necessarily the plan, but it was just to be able to share our stories with one another and, not, and, and just honour those stories and, and hold them lovingly and give, giving each other space to share them and be really honest with one another and to accept one another with all of our weaknesses and flaws and 
things that we could do better. And, and not to provide advice or to try and fix it, um, but, but just to be with one another and to be in fellowship with one another, to stand with one another and to honour one another was, for me, exactly what I needed. And I hope the other two found it as well. Um, and I think there's such importance in that, in, that, in giving each other space to be known by one another, to allow each other to see exactly who we are without necessarily trying to put on the, the spiritual mask or I've got all the right spiritual disciplines in place, um, you know, I'm doing all the right things, but to be deeply known by one another. In that place of fellowship, I really believe is where God can work, where God's love can permeate deep into our hearts and we are therefore able to invite others into that fellowship as well. Because when you feel completely known and loved and held and accepted, it is the natural response is to want to hold that out to others as well. You, it is no surprise that children are born into marriage. It's a natural consequence of two loving people. It, without wanting to go into the biology too much, it just sort of happens. Um, so, and John writes, we write this to make our joy complete. Now Jesus, the eternal life, the one who is all of God's authority and power, came to live amongst us, to be in fellowship with people. And we can join in that fellowship now because we can all be in fellowship with Jesus because he died on the cross. And that, makes, that made John's joy complete because he could invite other people into that fellowship as well. And this, was, this is a joy that, that transcended the challenges that, that John endured throughout his life. It transcended all his circumstances. It was a joy that came from relationship with the eternal life with Jesus. It was a joy that was, that was birthed in fellowship with God and with one another. And it was a joy that was made complete because it welcomed others into this fellowship as well. And that, and that is really my, I think in, in reading these verses this, over the last few weeks, as this is what I want us to be. I want us to be a, a community where we are deeply known by Jesus where we're in deep fellowship with one another, where we know each other with all the guards down, all the masks off, where we can enjoy that fellowship with one another and with God, and it just naturally invites people in. It naturally spreads to our neighbours, to our families, to our friends, to our colleagues, and we invite other people into this fellowship as well. And that is how we hold that tension of, there's darkness in the world, but the light cannot overcome it. That is how we play our role. And so it really starts with having 
that visceral gut level encounter with Jesus just like John did. And that's really where this all starts. We have to accept Jesus. We have to accept what he did on the cross for us. We have to bow the knee before him. And we have to be fully known by Jesus. And I have found the answer to that in Starbucks. There's a background, don't worry. Don't worry, GL, before you... Uh, um, I spent some time in Beirut when I was at university. I spent a wonderful summer in Beirut, in Lebanon. It's a great country. Food is amazing. I mean, compared to the Lebanese restaurants you get here, food's just amazing. Um, and I was somewhat out of my depth. This is a bit of a theme in my life, um, putting myself in these situations. And... Um, I was there because I wanted to see if that was somewhere I, I, you know, that maybe I might want to move to. My, um, and uh, so I was doing some Arabic classes while I was there. And before the classes started, I'd go and have a coffee at Starbucks. And every Starbucks in the world is exactly the same as every other Starbucks in the world. Only the customer service in Lebanon was way better. Um, and... I don't know why I chose Starbucks. I think it was because you could sit down um, and not all coffee shops in Lebanon had that kind of seating. Um, much more like in Italy where you go to a coffee shop and you stand at the bar to drink your espresso. Um, and and I, would, I would spend time praying in, in Starbucks. Only rather than kind of having a list of things to pray for, or I would just sit in God's presence and enjoy his love. And... It was, it was really, really powerful. And, and I stopped doing it because I felt it was awfully indulgent and that prayer really, you know, this is where we should be interceding for others. This is where we should be praising God. This is where I should be asking God for opportunities to preach the gospel, not just sitting and enjoying his love. And so I stopped doing that. And, um, and I think in the last year or so, I've come back to that. Um, and the importance of sitting in silence before Jesus and enjoying his love. It doesn't mean we shouldn't do the other stuff. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be interceding for others and shouldn't be reading the word, but making time to sit in silence in his love is truly transformational. And because it is the time when you can you have to really face the fact that God does accept you exactly as you are. Because when you sit in silence, your mind is just, there are thoughts coming in all over the place, feelings all over the place. Some of them you like, some of them you don't. And it is an opportunity to sit in silence and accept the fact that God loves you with all of that. And, and it, it is a discipline to allow yourself to be accepted by God's love in that way. And it's hard. So my challenge to you this week, little application, is every day set aside 10 minutes and sit in silence before God. And I'd love to hear how that goes because... For me, it's been really transformatory and it's been really hard. Ten minutes is a long time to, 
to be quiet and be still before God. And I think the verse that I've found that brings me back to this is, be still and know that I am God. And the more that we can encounter Jesus' love this way and be still before him and accept his love, the more we are able to enjoy fellowship with him, the more that we are able to enjoy fellowship with one another, and the more that we are able to hold out his love in this world. Someone once described worship to me as receiving God's perfect love and reflecting that back to him. And that's what I want to be able to do, is to accept Jesus' love exactly as I am, warts and all, and there are a lot of warts, and to be able to accept that love and to reflect it back to him in praise and to reflect that out into the world in service. And I'm excited about reading 1 John and going through it all together over the next few months because we're going to hear from the master teacher on how to do this.